Uh, welcome to The Surge. My name is Eric Reese. I go by E. We are talking about beautiful design. And just a quick recap, we're talking about gender and God's purpose in gender. And, and this is an important conversation to have because we live in a culture that increasingly is saying gender is not even a thing. It's not a real thing, that it's, it doesn't even exist at all. And, and I think biblically, that's a mistake. God has designed us and he's designed us with purpose. And without uh, being disrespectful or dishonoring anyone out there, I think we can say that God has a plan and he has good things for us. And, and it's interesting uh, that so much focus has been on this part of our lives recently because scripture says that, that when we get to heaven, that we'll be like the angels. There, there won't be marriage and that sexuality as such really won't be a thing anymore. So the things that we face now is men and women, in, at least in some sense, it's temporary, right? It's a stewardship and God's made it part of his plan, but it's something that's gonna be part of this chapter and not part of the next chapter. So even as we look at, at how this can be a positive impact in our life and, and it is important now, this is something that's temporary. It's a lesson to be learned now that's gonna be part of who we are and then we're gonna set it aside to some extent. It's interesting, we shouldn't order our lives around gender. Um, but one of the things we've talked about is we've talked about uh, God's purpose for men, God's purpose for women, some of the hangups that men and women uniquely face from a biblical perspective. And this morning, we're gonna wrap it up and, and really talk about what's the way out, what's the way forward. So for some of the unique challenges that we face, how do we process, how do we deal with these things well? So what I wanna do is, uh, it's a message so nice, we'll walk through it twice, and here's the basic roadmap. We're gonna talk about changing the scorecard. We're gonna understand that we can't get through the scorecard alone. We're going to talk about winning and how it seems to be. It's not always what it seems to be. And we're going to talk about trust as a key element in Christian life. Then we'll do that again. We'll do it once for men, once for women. We're going to move fast like Jeff Gordon driving the car. So fasten your seatbelts and let's start with men. The first thing that we talked about uh, men having a hang-up with is being too passive, right? They get told to sit down and shut up. They get told that they're part of the male patriarchy, that they're too dominant, that they need to just be quiet, or they'll, they'll be in a relationship or in a situation where people are aggressive and they just decide it's not worth the fight. And so what they'll do is they'll check out, right? They will check out. They'll sit on the couch and watch the game and be quiet and try not to make any, any waves or cause any trouble. The problem with this is, uh, let me say it like this. In medieval times, there were the seven deadly sins, right? You've probably heard of those, pride and lust, and one of them is sloth. Now, sloth, we normally associate with laziness, and certainly it can be that. But what sloth is, in, in a medieval ancient sense, it's literally trading what you ought to be doing for something that you'd rather do instead, right? So it's trading something that might even be a good thing, but setting aside the great thing and what God wants you to do. So sloth can actually look a lot like being a workaholic. You're pouring yourself into your career, you're spending a ton of time at the office, you're, you're working these insane hours and you're avoiding what God wants you to do, which is to be a godly husband and a godly father and to invest in the relationships of the next generation and instead, you're, you're, you're hiding, as it were, with activity. And so sloth can be trading one thing for another. For most of us, and for me at least, it's entertainment, right? A lot of movies, a lot of TV, a lot of video games, a lot of stuff that sucks up time but really doesn't have a lot of lasting value. And, and those things aren't bad, and I'm not telling you to never watch a movie. But what I am saying is be careful with your time. Be careful with the things that take you away from the things that are truly important and truly eternal because they can steal our joy. And that's a way for us to be passive and to hide. The other danger for men is that we're too aggressive, right? <laughs> we're just too aggressive. 
Sometimes we, uh, we want to bully or dominate our way into a situation to kind of get what we want or what we think happens. And sometimes that can even happen with good motive, but we're just way too aggressive. And in thinking about this, I'm reminded of, of a writer you've all heard of, a guy named Ernest Hemingway. Um, he, in Hemingway's work, he had a really fascinating theme that ran through pretty much all of it. And that was the theme of kind of youth and strength and a certain approach to life. And that approach to life was tied to a physicality of being strong, of being a alpha male and taking control of nature, taking control of your destiny, taking control of, of these things. And for Hemingway, when you started to lose a step, right, when you got a little bit older, when the back started to hurt and the hair started to recede and those kind of things, your life was done. Your life was done. And from there, it's just a slow slide into decay and death. And for Hemingway, when he got to that age, he couldn't handle it. He couldn't process it. Or I, I should say he didn't handle it. He didn't process it. And what he did was, instead of uh, engaging in, in his mind, the slow descent into darkness, he got a shotgun, he put it in his mouth, and he aggressively pulled the trigger. Ended his life early on. Here's the thing that's ironic about that. <laughs> how, how much could Hemingway bench press? <laughs> I don't know, probably a lot when he was a kid, you know, probably a lot when he was a young man. Hemingway was an expert in, uh, as a soldier, probably an expert in several kinds of weapons. What was his favorite gun? Can anybody name Hemingway's favorite gun? Nobody, right? Who, who knows? Who knows? Who cares? Can anybody name something that Hemingway wrote? Most of us could, right? The sun also rises for whom the bell tolls, his short stories a day's wait, the old man in the sea, right? Hemingway's gift to the world was his mind. It was his writing. And for some reason, he couldn't get to the sense of seeing that his words were strong, right? That his words were, had a real strength and a real power. And, and I think about if, if I could get into a room with Hemingway, you know, however many years ago it was, and have a conversation with him and go, no, 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 you're not looking at this right. God made you with a purpose. And yeah, to be strong is part of that purpose. I think it's part of that purpose, but you're taking it too far. You're taking this aggression thing and you're taking it all the way to 11 and, and you've got to cut it out. It, you can't make that your God. Because it's not, gravity wins, right? Eventually you're going to get slow and old, and, but that doesn't mean you're not worth anything. Man, the thing that you have, the thing that you are uniquely suited to do, as well as anybody who's ever lived maybe, is to write and to communicate and to talk about deep truths of life in a meaningful way, in a thoughtful way. And you could do that for another 50 years. <laughs> you, know, you, don't have to, you don't have to run a mile to, to do that. You don't have to be strong in the way that you're thinking about it to do that. And the problem with being aggressive and the problem with making that our thing is that eventually we lose our ability to do it, one. But second, it's just out of balance. That can't be the thing that, that orders our life. For Hemingway, he couldn't reconcile that and it was the wrong answer. He shot himself. And it's very ironic. It's very ironic. The thing I want to say is this. God has a plan for us. Satan wants to steal it. He wants to wreck it. He wants to take us off of our purpose and he'll lie to us however he can and saying, it's not worth it, you can't win the fight or, <laughs> you know what, you've got to go as far as you can and when you can't do it anymore, then, then you're done. You just need to sit down and check out. And, and it's a mistake. We can't think about our lives that way. So in terms of scripture, here's what I want to, here's what I want to do. I want to look at Ezekiel 37. It's a little bit of a long passage, but I want to read it just because I want, I want to get the sense 
of what God is saying and how different in tone and nature it is for thinking about men and being men well. So let's look at Ezekiel 37. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound and behold, a rattling and the bones came together bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land that you shall know I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. And the first thing I want to say about this wonderful passage that's filled with hope is this. We have to change the scorecard, right? We have to change the scorecard. Now, this story in Ezekiel comes in a time when the nation of Israel has basically fallen apart, and they've been carried off into exile. Now, Ezekiel is promising this. He's prophesying this in a time when all the world's powers that were known were at war with each other. There was Egypt, which was an old empire, but still had a lot of game and a lot of power. There were other superpowers in the world that were coming up and they were clashing and Israel was right in the middle. The people of Israel had seen their entire country burned to the ground and they had been exiled. They departed out of their country. They were, part, they were put in another country. They felt like everything was lost. This is the context that Ezekiel is speaking in. And the promise from God to the dry bones that is their world is, I'll put you back together, an exceedingly great army, I'll enter the chaos, I'll enter the fray, I'll enter the brokenness, and bone by bone, sinew by sinew, muscle by muscle, flesh by flesh, I'll breathe my life into you. And where you've been dead, and where the stench of death has reigned, you will live, right? And there'll be a different aroma, the aroma of God's presence. See, our, our version of scorecard is success here and now. It's financial, it's political, it's relational, it's, it's the things that we use to order our world, and those aren't bad things. I mean, gosh, if you look around in this area, work hard, make some money, and be generous. I mean, that's part of God's will for you. I can just say it out loud. But, but listen, we have to take, we have to take an eternal view. Because our scorecard reading of the dry bones, even in Ezekiel's day, even as God fulfilled it, did not happen 
like we would put it on the chalkboard, like we would plan it out, right? Our scorecard reality of the dry bones, with God's picking up and we say, okay, E, you're king, dry bones are gonna live again, there's gonna be exceedingly great army, you call the play, go. And what I would have done, it's like I would have Israel raising up to somehow become a superpower and they would crush Egypt and Babylon and then the Medes and the Persians and then, you know, Rome and they would just rule and reign and it would be good and God would be part of the process and it would be really great. And the government on earth would be fantastic and the electoral process would not be crazy sauce and it would be good, right? It would be a good thing. That's how I would, that's how I would run the table. It's not how God did it, right? It's not how he did it. The exceedingly great army that God fulfilled in Ezekiel wasn't a political one. These guys were the remnant for a long time, thousands of years. What God did was he spoke his breath into them and he preserved Israel and the Jewish and Hebrew people as a culture in spite of the fact that they had no home, right? And you want, it's the only culture that's ever happened to, right? You wanna to talk to the Hittites? There are no more Hittites. The Hittites got overrun by da 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 and they stopped being a culture. You wanna to talk to Romans? There are no more Romans, right? You wanna to talk to the this and that, great empires that have come and gone, the Ottoans, they're, they're, they're not there anymore. They stopped being who they were, but God preserved the Hebrew people. Why? Because he used them to bring us Jesus. And there was a divine thing in the earth that he was doing, and the thread that he carried through was one of amazing spiritual strength. They were a spiritual army and were through the ages, and they were preserved so that God could bring us the redemptive act of his son. We have to change the scorecard. We have to look at things with different eyes. We have to see things like God sees them. And we've got to stop measuring our scorecard by what the scorecard the world gives us. What do you do? Do you have a good job? Do you have power and influence and significance? Hey, maybe, maybe not. The question we need to ask ourselves is, am I in the center of where God wants me to be? Am I speaking the words that he wants me to speak? Am I investing in the relationships that he wants me to invest in? And that might look crazy from the world's perspective, right? It, it, might look, it might look silly. It might look like your salary goes down for 10 years in a row. And yet the fruit of that can be something amazing. It can be something amazing. Here's the second thing. We have to change the scorecard. Second thing is this. We can't reach the new scorecard alone. We have to see that the scorecard isn't one that we can fill out ourselves. We just can't get there through our own power. Ezekiel, can you bring these dry bones to life? The answer is no, Right? Can Hemingway, through his power as a dominant alpha male, bring the dry bones to life? No, he can't get it done, and neither can we. <laughs> Our response to the bones too often is to give up. Can't raise the dead, might as well not even try, right? But what God wants to speak over us is something else. It, it, it's a realization that we can't get there on our own, right? It's a realization that we have to step into something else. We have to plug into the power source that is God's will that takes us to a place that we could never get to on our own. We can't reach the new scorecard alone. We have to look at the situation and say, this is beyond us, I'm not strong enough, I'm not smart enough, I'm not good enough to move the bones, right? My own ability to navigate the passive or aggressive dangers as a man, it will only lead to failure and more bones. It will never raise them up. It's just more stench of death. We have to say, like Ezekiel, only God knows. Can these bones live again? Oh, God, you know. And, and there's a sense of humility and a sense of dependence and a sense of, God, you can do what you want, and I'd love to be a part of it. But you are the essential ingredient here. We can't get this done on our own. Only God knows the way far, forward. Only God has the power 
to make this change. So to change the scorecard, we have to understand that God's help is the necessary ingredient of filling out the new scorecard. The third thing is this. <laughs> winning isn't winning. Winning is playing our part well. We've just got, we've got to set this aside. Uh, by, by the scorecard of the American dream, the Bible is filled with astounding failures. Failures, right? Um, Isaiah. I mean, we love Isaiah. We think Isaiah is one of the big kids. We, he's seven foot tall and he's glowing and he's speaking about Jesus and he's doing these prophetic things. But if you remember from Isaiah 6, the great, his great call, right, where he sees God on his throne and his train fills the temple and there are angels and they're flying around and they're singing, holy, 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 who will we send and the coal and the lips and the whole thing. And Isaiah says, send me, send me, pick me, coach, put me in. And he says, okay, I'm going to send you. You are the guy for this generation. And then what does he tell him? You're going to speak and they're not going to listen, <laughs> right? You're going to say words, but they're not going to hear them. And Isaiah was really on paper a failure, like his life was filled with frustration. He didn't have a lot of measurable results, as it were. And yet, his words in his book have been a blessing to every generation since for thousands of years. And in the, in the pattern of God's mosaic, Isaiah is a shining thread, right? He's a beautiful piece of the puzzle. He's this amazing force for good. For, for Jewish people and for Christians now, Isaiah is this shining light. But at the time, he was probably a little frustrated, right? Because he couldn't get anybody to listen to him. He couldn't get anybody to hear what God was, was saying. <laughs> Jeremiah, he's standing in the rubble of Jerusalem. He's saying, God wants to do amazing things. You've got to cut it out. And they're like, yeah, Jeremiah, you're an old crazy person. And no one, he was in the same boat. He was standing in the rubble. He didn't have a big mega church with lots of success and lots of good process and lots of you know, good things around him. He was surrounded by failure, <laughs> by the way we normally measure it. Jeremiah wasn't a failure. Jeremiah was the voice of God in his context and in his generation, and he was saying something critical and important. And again, he's been a comfort to every generation since and will continue to be. Ezekiel was in a similar place. He's prophesying to the dry bones and he's seeing these amazing vision. But Israel did not become a superpower in his generation. Israel did not raise up in the way that he might have hoped they would. And by our scorecard, by our culture's scorecard, these guys would have been a failure. <laughs> Ezekiel came to your, your office tomorrow with his resume in hand <laughs> and said, Hey, looking for a job. You say, okay, so what have you been doing? Well, I've been a crazy person for, you know, oh, 37 years now. I've been laying on my side for six months at a time. I've been smashing little clay pots as, as a spiritual metaphor for the nations. <laughs> you know, I've, I've been seeing things that don't make a lot of sense. And you'd say, uh-huh. And uh, that dude would bounce on his way out of your corporate world, right? I mean, like, he, we wouldn't hire him. He was, he's a nut. At the same time, he was the guy that was in the center of where God wanted him to be. Winning isn't winning, winning is playing our part well. And this is the thing that we have to realize, both as individuals and as a church. We're not responsible for the results. God is responsible for the results. Jesus said that I will build my church, and you can take that to the bank. Our part is to do everything we can think of to do, is to love everyone we can think of to love, is to put ourselves in the position of being teachable, of being humble, of saying, gosh, I can't do this myself, a lot of dry bones around, I want them to live, but I can't get it done by myself. All I can do is listen to God and find out what he's doing and obey and play our part and do the very best we can and then let God bring the breath from the four winds and let him do the thing that he's gonna do and, and trust him for what's going on. We're not responsible for the victory. We're responsible for playing our part well.
And the key is this, the key is trust. If you're in a situation that looks bad on paper, trust. That's your way out. That is your way out. Look to God, ask him for help. Listen, respond. So men, hear me. (laughs) Don't be passive. And on the other side, don't try to control everything. If you can in your heart say, God, I trust you. And I trust you beyond my ability to understand it, beyond my ability to fix it, beyond my ability to understand it, beyond my ability to be frustrated, beyond my ability to fix the dry bones that I'm surrounded by. Trust, press deeply into God's love. Find the peace that he wants to bring you, the peace that will trump our ability to fix it ourselves. We've got to let go in some sense and trust God to do his thing. C.S. Lewis has a great quote that I love. And he says, the problem is this. The problem isn't that we go too far. The problem is that we don't go far enough or in the right way. And that's exactly right. And when it comes to being passive, it's not that we we check out or give up, but there is a sense in which we relinquish control and we surrender, right? And we say, God, I can't fix this here. I give it to you, (laughs) right? And and in some sense, that, that feels passive, but it's not. It's very active. It's giving it to God and trusting him with it. In the, same, in the same way, we feel aggressive and we want to stand up and we want to fight for what's right. And sometimes that can get into a bad place. <laughs> but if we go further and in the right way, we can find passages of scripture that say, they say fight, they say stand. And we understand that what we're fighting against and standing against is not people, right? It's not, it's not the people around us that are bothering us, but it's the forces of darkness. It's the influence of evil that we stand against and that we fight against. And when we find that kind of injustice, we can have a backbone and we can stand and we can fight and we can be incredibly aggressive when we're centered up in who Christ wants us to be and when we're going about that in the right way. So change the scorecard. Understand you can't do it alone. Set winning aside. Play your role well. Trust that God can do his thing, and let's turn to the ladies. Uh, Dwayne talked about it, and I thought this was a marvelous uh, sermon. It certainly hit, hit Karen pretty well. Um, but talked about some of the things that women deal with and some of the things that women uniquely struggle with. Um, and one of those was uh, women comparing themselves to other, to other people, particularly women. And, and Dwayne talked about this, and he talked about the trap that it is. <laughs> and Karen says it this way. You've got, you've got to let that go at some point because someone will always be smarter, someone will always be prettier, someone will always be kinder, someone will always be more able to make their own soap and take pictures on Facebook on the way to the vineyard and their perfect little life. What, what, meanwhile, what you've been doing is you're lucky to take a shower and keep the children alive and eat human food. You know, It just doesn't seem quite the same thing. We've got to understand that sometimes the Facebook snapshots are not the reality that we face every day and stop comparing yourself to people. <laughs> there was a, a really funny... Uh, thing on, uh, I believe it was Funny or Die that first published it, but they did, they were bagging on the Photoshop alterations and somebody actually took a piece of pizza, a piece of pepperoni pizza and slowly altered it over time and turned it into a girl wearing a bikini, (laughs) right? Using the elements from the pizza. And and we've got to stand against that kind of thing. That kind of comparison just isn't fair because you can literally do anything with the, the digital manipulation and we just have to say it. We just got to stand. The pizza is beautiful on its own, <laughs> right? We, we don't need to Photoshop it. We don't need to alter it. The pizza all by itself is a, is, is a good thing. We can celebrate the, the pizza. <laughs> so, the, so women comparing, the second thing uh, women uniquely deal with is perfectionism. And this is certainly true of my wife. Uh, as many of you know, and I'll say it, you've heard me say it before, you're hearing me say it again, but Karen is the heart for the White House. She's a brilliant, I mean, she's, she's a top tier orchestral performer. She's about as good as a musician gets. 
if there's a piece of heart music that's possible for a human to play, she can take a legitimate shot at it. I mean, she can, she can, she can do it. It's amazing. Um, <laughs> she'll come to a concert and she will absolutely clobber the piece she is playing. I mean, it's like, it's beautiful and musical and she's like, she's dialed in and it's awesome. What she fo- is focused on, laser focused on, after the concert, oh, I missed a note in the thing. I didn't quite get, I didn't quite get that. I popped a pedal, you know, there, it went ka-chunk at one point that I can't hear and I'm listening, you know. Uh, she's laser focused on the, on the thing that she didn't do perfectly. <laughs> Even when she had this unbelievable next level unhuman performance, she's still focused on the thing that she missed. And gosh, that can steal your joy if we focus on it too much. If we focus on the little mistake, we can miss the goodness of the day. So, so ladies, here's the way out. Here's what you need to know. Here's how we change the scorecard. Here's how we understand we can't do it alone. Here's how to set aside winning and trust. Let's look at Hebrews 12. And Emily read this to us before. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight, every sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the rates that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and, hear this, perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and seated, and seated at the right hand of the throne of God. <laughs> you just got, you've got to hear this. I mean, I, for, for, for ladies particularly, your scorecard is not based on your personal trainer, your professional makeup artist, your nutritionist, the plastic surgeon that extends your acting career for a few more years. Your, your scorecard is not based on that. Your scorecard is not based on the guy who's using Photoshop to slim down your arms for the magazine cover. Your scorecard is based on looking to Christ. <laughs> it's seeing him and seeing him as the author, the writer, the creator, the founder of you and who he has made you uniquely to be. You're the race that you're running that it talks about in Hebrews, and this is interesting because competition in scripture just doesn't exist. It <laughs> does not exist. We don't, we never, I never see in scripture people competing against other people, and yet there are a lot of metaphors of wrestling and fighting and racing. What they always talk about, and this is fascinating, what they always talk about is racing against the own things that, the things that would hinder us from being everything God wants us to be the things that would keep people in our communities from coming to God. Those are the things that we fight against. Those are the things that we run against. It's never each other. Scripture is always talking about love and service and cooperation as opposed to a competitive, a competitive model. So the race that God has set before you, he's given you a race, and, and I, I hear this part, He's given you a race that's tailored to you alone. You're not running it against other women. You're not running it against other men. You're not running it against anybody. It's a race that he has tailored for you, and he's engineered it for you to run it well. (laughs) He's engineered it for you to run it well. So stop looking to Instagram. Stop looking to the magazine cover. Stop looking to the stuff that make you feel bad, and look to Jesus instead. Change the scorecard. (laughs) You'll, You'll never get there if you don't do that. You'll never, you'll never compare to the, the piece of pizza that, that's just not, that's not a fair comparison, and you'll never be perfect in the way that you want to be perfect until you let Jesus perfect you. You have to change the scorecard. And we want to, and we want to reach the new scorecard, but we can't do it alone. And this is true for, for the ladies as well as the men. And, and when we get this, when we understand it, it's incredibly freeing. It's good news, Right? Because the gospel is not based on our performance. It's not based on our ability to get it right. It's based on Jesus and the sacrifice that he made and the power of the Holy Spirit that raised Christ from the dead that comes into us and empowers us to do things beyond our own ability to get it right. It's not dependent on us. 
is dependent on God and the love of God, which he freely gives to us. And when we understand that central aspect of grace, that central aspect of the gospel, the redemptive power of what Jesus did, we understand that filling out the scorecard is not something that I'm on my own with, right? It's not something that I can compare. It's not, something, it's not another reason to not be perfect and feel bad. It's something that we can ask for God's help with. And the Holy Spirit will come and fill you and take you where he wants you to be. Because no one can be you like you can. No one can influence the, the people in your life like you can. You're uniquely positioned to be God in that situation. Remember that winning isn't winning. Winning is playing our part well. And can I just say this? When I think about the women at the surgeon, I won't start naming you, but, but I could. You guys are the least shallow group of people I know. I mean, like you, 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 in terms of balancing this, I think you're doing really well. And so good job. Keep up the good work. Keep doing what you're doing. Press even further into it because God uh, has even greater things ahead. God God has put on our hearts to be the kind of church that will invest deeply in what God is doing in this generation, to invest deeply in the next generation of leaders. And we have some people like Dwayne, and we have some people like Greg, some people like, you know, and there's some women here as well that are just wonderful, wonderful uh, examples of what a Christian can be in terms of trust, in terms of uh, standing in the midst of a difficult situation and not falling away. You guys really have some amazing character among you, and I just want to commend you for that and know that there's a sense in which you're an integral part of where God wants to take the surge as a church. And so find your role, find your part to play, and play it well. The key is trust. (laughs) I was at dinner just a couple of days ago, in fact, um, and there's a group of us, and we were uh, talking to a friend who's who's moving away, and and the girl at the dinner uh, said... She was talking about her context and she was talking about some things uh, related to the person who's leaving. And she said this. She said in her context of her spiritual life, uh, because of something, she feels safe. And it just hit me the way she said it. I was like, man, that's good. That's really, really good. It just resonated. And I think that's the center of where God wants us to be, to, to find a place of trust, to find out where he's placed us, to plug in, to have the trust that God is in control, the perspective that where we are is where he's placed us. And we can feel safe there, right? We can find a place of trust and be safe regardless of what it looks like on paper, regardless of what the circumstance looks like. So we need to change the scorecard. We need to understand we can't do it alone. We need to stop worrying about winning and understand that playing our role well is the the place we need to be. And the key, the key is trust. Deciding to really trust that God knows what he's doing and he has the big picture well in hand. Uh, The Jeff Gordon video uh, amused me, of course, But the thing that I noticed that was fascinating to me, fascinating, was in both videos, the one he did with the (laughs) the poor used car salesman that was absolutely staging and nutty and going crazy, and also the guy that was the reporter. In both cases, when they got to the big reveal and it's like, hey, I'm Jeff Gordon, you know, I'm one of the best race car drivers in the world and and that kind of thing. He He asked both of the passengers who were no kidding, cursing, screaming, threatening, bargaining, you know, trying to do anything they could to get out of the situation, he asked them, hey, do you want to go again? And with no hesitation, both of them say, yeah. And I'm, and I'm going, wait, wait, time out. <laughs> you know, flag, flag on the play. You were screaming. You were, I mean, you thought your life was done. I mean, you thought you were going to die. What, what's going on? When they understood that who was driving 
wasn't a moron, right? It wasn't a hobo that just jumped off the train and grabbed the wheel. It wasn't some, you know, crazy taxi driver that who knows where he's been. When they understand that the driver is Jeff Gordon, right? All of a sudden, it's like, well, that changes, that changes everything, right? That we're not talking about the same thing at all. I'm perfectly safe in the hands of the most capable driver maybe on earth. Sure, I'll go again on your crazy preordained racetrack with a car that's been tuned with somebody who knows what they're doing, right? And it's this unbelievable level of trust knowing who's driving the car. Isn't that interesting? No hesitation. You want to go again? Yes. Listen, can I just say this? When it comes to life, when it comes to being the man or woman that God wants you to be, when it feels like life is completely out of control, right? You're, you're skidding around the corner, you're screaming, you don't think things are good. Know this, know that God is the one driving the car. <laughs> he is the one who is in control of the track. It's been, it's been seen before. It's not a surprise to him. And you're in good hands. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for the beautiful design that you have, you have put into our lives. And we thank you for the picture that you are in control and that you love us and you want the best for us. And even though life may bring tragedy, that it may bring suffering, we know that your hand is on the wheel. We know that your grace is bigger than any sorrow. We know that your love is deeper than any hurt. So Lord, uh, I stand before you in humility and in brokenness. And with a lot of people here, I know enough of their stories to know that they face some tough things. But Lord, I pray that your grace would shine down on us and make us your people. Make us a light, make us a beacon, and draw us into the very center, the very center of who you want us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.